0: Alright, so, uh, Richard, I only have one review slide. It is quite complex, though. It'll take two or three hours to get through. Um, infin- to infinity and beyond, that number nine up there. I want to welcome those of you that are guests. I see some of you that are new here. Not totally new. I, I recognize your face from the conference and, and, uh, and the rest of you. Bless you. I love you. Uh, <laughs> I recognize your faces too. Uh, so that number nine up there is that this is the ninth in a series of messages talking about new creation, image bearing, and trying to get a handle on what, what Jesus did on the cross, uh, the impact that had. And so there's a a little bit of review about that, not as extensive as I usually do, but, uh, Tonight's called uh, to infinity and beyond. I thought about that. It's not really called in, to infinity and beyond. I'll show you why. It's actually called to eternity and beyond. But I thought about that phrase to infinity and beyond. And so what we're talking about here is the covenant faithfulness in Messiah Jesus that came through the cross, the resurrection, the new creation, the image bearing restored, you know, uh, and, and if you haven't uh, ever heard anything that that like N.T. Wright has talked about about temple stuff and image bearing in that temple. He just puts a great context on it and it kind of captured my heart. We've been working through it. It started, if you remember when when I asked the question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That announcement. And we tried to take that as seriously as we possibly could and and not to water it down and not to make it a big conditional thing and all this kind of stuff. So we've been at this for a while, and it led us through this stuff. And now we've come to the part of the summing up of all things in Jesus. So, to eternity and beyond, and the to infinity and beyond, got me thinking about Buzz Lightyear and his buddies. And so, this might be the way you think of eschatology. (laughs) And I, I can understand that. I can understand that. I'm hoping... That we can transfer into this sort of a posture. And you can tell there's some smiling and, and old Woody is going, yeah. Now, one of the immediate comparisons is on the Spork guy. Does anybody know his name? Spork, what is it? Forky. Forky, okay. So Forky, you know, you can just tell, I mean, it's so dramatic, the difference between <laughs> how he looks and how he thinks. And I, I really, I, I, I felt super, identifying with the the tension between these two things. Now, the one that I'm hoping that we can ultimately kind of manifest as here, I like all the smiles, of course, and that's Bo Peep or something, isn't it? Yeah. But now look at that guy. Does he look confident or what? Okay. So I've talked to a lot of people about eschatology, and they're either usually really defensive or really scared. And, And I think it's... There's the capacity. So hopefully I haven't violated any copyrights uh, and we'll not get in trouble with Disney. So here's our review. And I'll, I'll give a little extra because I know a couple of you haven't been here. In the first place, the big event that happened is that in Jesus the Messiah, Father forgave sins. And the reason the the reference to Jesus as Messiah is there is for so much of our life and so much of the life in the Western church we disassociate the work of Jesus and the redemptive work, the atoning work from the redemptive plan of God throughout history. And so that's something that we spent quite a bit of time on. Jesus, the lamb slain uh, who takes away the sin of the world, is the plan from the beginning. It was echoed when God was talking about uh, he will crush his head and he will bruise his heel. It's caught up in Abraham's covenant of freedom. It's So this redemptive thing that, that we identify with as believers. It's been an expression of the heart of the Father forever. Forever. And so this ties it in. So the forgiveness of sin led to two kind of amazing things. And I don't fully understand this, and I I always qualify that when I say it, but the rulers, the principalities, and the powers, their authority, which at some point in time seemed to be quite... Firm, it was broken, and as a result of that being broken, exile was broken. And so, one of the things that we looked at in in, in the, some of the parallels and understanding as we look back on Israel is that when Israel was in exile, that didn't mean that God wasn't with them. I mean, in Babylon, God was obviously with Daniel. There was prophetic words. He was with the Hebrew children. He was with uh, Mordecai and Esther and the children of Israel, and in, in other parts of that captivity. But there was, a, there was a, a perceived alienation, a perceived called exile, where no more were they there at the temple where the of presence of the Lord was and stuff like that. So exile is broken as a result of the forgiveness of sin. That's N.T. Wright's proposition. We've dug into it. I think there's something to it for sure. And lastly, that leads to the fact that we as image bearers, people made in the image of God, have been restored potentially, actually really, to that position, but we're catching up with the reality of that potential. And that repentance in a new way. Now, I had some wonderful conversation about that. I had two or three of you challenge me because I said that that prior to this, there uh, repentance wasn't available the way it is now. Now, let me explain what I meant exactly. And I still kind of stand by it, but I do appreciate the conversations we've had. It's very rare if you look back in history, and I'm not enough of a historian, I don't have enough resources to prove this, but I believe it to be true. I'm going to say it the way I think it is, and you can, you can think about it, and you might join the group that is refining it by challenging me, which is good. But you don't hear a lot of stories about cultures, uh, pagan cultures, Gentile cultures that did not have contact with Israel changing very much. It's even hard to kind of imagine. That if if somebody was born into a a culture uh, in the, in the Far East or born in a culture in the Americas, this is prior to Christ, the chance of them of there being a mechanism for them to change was very different. I mean, radically change. And this this idea I think relates to a, an authority that I don't fully understand that these. Non-divine beings, angels, principalities, powers, whatever. The, the, uh, watchers, then maybe the Nephilim play into this or something. Nephilim or uh, Nephilim, I think I better pronounce it. Anyway, even if you think about at the Tower of Babel, when languages were, were separated and the people were scattered, there seemed to be cultural uniqueness and influence that defined people groups. And those people groups just didn't change. I mean, they lasted for thousands of years. And I'm not saying there wasn't progress, there wasn't certain technological stuff, but it's nothing like after Christ died and rose again. Because all of a sudden, there is a a mechanism for repentance and a mechanism for delivering that repentance, which is the proclamation of the gospel, the declaration that God has come to earth and death is broken, and sins are forgiven. And you can see that regardless of the strength of of a given culture, now the gospel penetrates those cultures, and somebody can get a call in their life, and they can go into the darkest culture you can imagine, and things change. And that's where a lot of great missionary stories come from, like in New Hebrides or other places, the uh, stuff in the Caribbean islands and things like this. So there's something there, and that's kind of the... The three categories and the repentance is unto an alignment with the covenant faithfulness of God, unto an alignment with what God has intended and carried out from his heart and projected all through history. So, uh, covenant faithfulness is another one of those, those deals. That's why that was mentioned up there. All right. So that led us to, uh, last week and, uh, it, it probably have some time if, if there's any questions on any of these things. That was kind of a quick review, but we looked at at six points about new creation. The first one is that God reconciled the world and the the cosmos, the people and places. He reconciled that to himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And you know it goes on from there in the next couple of verses and it talks about that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become... The righteousness of God. So point one of the new creation is that the cosmos, the people in it, even the earth in a sense is reconciled to God in a way that may not fully manifest or show, but is real. It's, it's, it's like it, it's true from God's perspective, from his heart. The second, and this is one that you got to choose to believe or not. Uh, the, and and you don't have to believe it because I say it. But I would encourage you to think hard and long about this particular one. The people of the whole world, those people's sins are forgiven. Amen. 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 We got a couple believers. No, it's hard, guys. I understand it. It's hard to wrestle through with this. It's hard to make that carte blanche declaration. Because then, well, why in the world doesn't it show up much more? But then this takes us all the way back to the original question. Who is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God who... Took away the sins of the world. When did he take them away? Well, you could say he took them away before the foundation of the world, but it, I don't know that that's the case, but I know, I know that he took them away on the cross. And then one of the things that, that leads us to try to focus on this and in spite of all the contrary evidence to just say yes is can you imagine Father, not answering the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. So the issue is not conditional forgiveness. The issue is not uh, the, 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 the slavery or so on. This is the next point. So the rulers and the powers that were disempowered and forced slavery was broken. Now, I think that there was a manifest authority for centuries after the fall, after the flood, through Babylon and all that. But that does not happen now. Now, uh, as Jen and I were talking a little bit on Tuesdays and brought up some really good points, I don't know how, it's hard to talk about this and feel like you're being fair to both sides because almost all the history that I know about repentance and that we know about is through the Scriptures, and the Scripture is the story of the gift of repentance being poured out to the world through Israel, so when people came in contact with Israel, yes, they could repent. Classic examples: Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, you know the uh, Naaman. I mean, there's all kinds of people that could join up. But if it's true that the reigning authority of those lower Elohim, with a little e, if it's true that they had control then the world was a very different place after Jesus. There, that passage in Colossians, that he stripped them of their power, making an open shame of them. Jesus in John chapter 12, uh, yeah, John chapter 12, that's if you remember when they said we would see Jesus and and, um, uh, the Father spoke from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it. And Jesus said, this word wasn't for me. This, This voice wasn't for me. But that the ruler of this world, is going to be cast down just prior to this crucifixion. So that's the thought behind all that. And what that means is, is that freedom is a real option for everybody. Everybody. A real option. Now, just because those rulers no longer have authoritative or, um, well, I say authoritative uh, control to force slavery, Paul says that don't you know that to whom you surrender, you are a slave? So the voluntary aspect of it is still very, very real. And that's what we're dealing with in a lot of people's hearts. So this helps us understand what our task is when we witness to people, what we pray for people, when we love people, that kind of stuff. So uh, repentance, uh, aligning with God's covenant reconciliation, and we had a discussion about that. Um, you know, we, we do an injustice to repentance when we think all it is is feeling intensely sorry about what you did wrong. It is a matter of alignment. It is a matter of faith, a matter of belief, a matter of looking up and saying yes. And one probably even more, not more important, but more difficult, is looking at yourself and going, in spite of all the evidence that I manifest, I am an image bearer of the King of kings and Lord of lords, of the Ancient of Days. So, that's what this is all about. And it's the reason that God can say what he says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. That, you know, I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. I'm going to write my word in their, or uh, put my word in their, uh, write my word in their heart and put it in their mind. Uh, no one's going to have to know or, or tell their neighbor, know the Lord, for everyone will know from the least, because I will have mercy on their transgression and their sins I will remember no more. It goes right back to the, uh, Second Corinthians five. I, you know, not counting their trespasses against them. Anyway, it's a big deal and we've kind of butchered it. Those two things in, uh, in Acts talk about the, the two sort of, uh, quintessential moments in, in the, the record of the church in Acts where the apostles realized that repentance was a gift. And so the, the second one there. So God has given the gift the same gift to the Gentiles, the gift of repentance. And the first one is where Peter's talking and says that he has given the gift of repentance to Israel. So that's what number four is. Number five is that in Christ, God sees men and women as new creations. And then we have to take our lead from that. We have to see men and women as new creations. We cannot see them as sinners that need to be saved. I'm not saying that there's not sin. I'm not saying people don't need uh, to experience salvation, but I'm saying we cannot align with the Father and look at people that way. And we have to go beyond that. We have to go beyond that. So uh, Paul says there, you know, that love constrains him. And in verse 14, he says, um, I know that uh, one died and all died. And therefore, we no longer see or reckon any man in the flesh, even though we did Jesus at one point. So that's what that's about. Yes, sir?
1: Uh, I've been meditating on this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. ever since we started. Sure. And one of the things that uh, I find in myself and, and others is that we hold on to those things that we are not. Yeah. I know that I struggled with divorce, that second rate Christian
0: mm-hmm.
1: held that, I held on to that for a long time until God showed me, no, I'm a child of God. Yeah. And that's not a part of me. Yeah. And that goes with a lot of different things. These are all the things that you've gone through are we hear, but yet we're not hearing mm-hmm. because we're not understanding that God has delivered us from everything. Yeah. And we are free. Yeah. And we no longer have to bow down to those things of the past seek to that drag us down. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that may be. Yeah. And I think one of the
0: reasons, Richard, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I love the passion, we don't take our union with Christ seriously. We don't understand it, so we can't believe it. But we can't see it, you know, or whatever the case is. Uh, and and but that God takes it seriously. The Father takes it seriously. The Spirit operates 100% of the time in the full knowledge of the union between Jesus and humanity. And all the stuff that, that the Scripture talks about that we don't preach about very often, and it's real vague, like being seated with Christ in heavenly places, and and uh, in that day. Uh, what is it, Tim? I don't know if I can remember that scripture. <laughs> in, in that day, you'll know that I'm in my Father, you're in me and I'm in you. John 14.20. Now listen, that's said with one breath. One sentence. Nobody in the Christian realm would doubt, that. Je- well, very few would, that Jesus is in the Father. In the very same sentence, with the very same breath, without a break, He said, and you're in me and I'm in you. So we don't have the right to believe the first clause and not believe the next two. And it's because we don't that we keep, again, voluntary slavery has been broken. I mean, uh, forced slavery has been broken, but voluntary agreement with the enemy that wants to still be a rebellious and deceptive individual, that is still real. And it gets to say, hey, you did this, so that's what you are. You have this in your history, so that's what you are. No, I have the homo oseus union <laughs> of the Word and the flesh as my ancestry, as my present life. And we've got to start believing it because there's nobody else to believe it. That's our mission. That's what Second Corinthians 5, 14 through 20 is, is that God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos from himself, not counting their sins against them, And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that word. And therefore, as ambassadors, we beg you, be reconciled. The door is right here. You are reconciled with God. Step into it. Step up to it. We've got to learn to preach the gospel that way. And I've been learning some stuff recently that I'm not qualified to teach on yet, but it's about the, the power that is released in the declaration of the gospel. Not... Like what I do all the time, most times teach and it's got its place, but there's, it's not the same thing as just simply sitting somebody down and saying, this is who you are in Christ. And we've got to, get, I want to get better at that. I do, but we did that, that little uh, gospel worksheet thing we did. Kind of cool. All right. So now we're going to look at our last uh, new creation point, which has to do with eschatology. So. The future is a gift from the Father, and I want to start shifting our thinking. That's the goal tonight. I want to sh- take us out of that category of the "us, for and no more" in a panic mode, and I want to be over in where where Buzz and Woody and all of them were, you know. And 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 so we're going to have to perhaps consider shifting the biblical base of our expectations of eschatology. And I'm not saying, uh, cherry pick nicer scriptures or anything like that. I'm saying what is at the core and then how can we understand what is revealed and what is our responsibility in understanding? And do we, are we, are we as responsible to understand the details or to walk in the light of it? And I think the latter is probably true. That's where I'm working on. So anyway, uh, point one of this future. What, what's new about new creation? Well, new creation in Jesus is the new in the new heavens and the new earth. The way I said it last week was that there is a seamless connection between the redemptive work of God that has been going on through the ages that was culminated in the Messiah and victorious through the resurrection. There is a seamless connection between that, the new creation, the disempowering of those spiritual powers, the life of repentance going out and the new heaven and the new earth. And so, if you have read anything of N.T. Wright, you know, one of the things he does that gets him in a lot of trouble is he says that the Western Church, by and large, has platonized our view of the end of things. And so, uh, we've, we've bought Plato's dualism and that the good stuff's up here and the bad stuff's down here. And so, the goal of the gospel. And the goal of salvation is to get saved, whatever that means, however you're talking about it, and then escape this place and go to heaven. And even though most Christians confess to believing in the resurrection, I don't know that very many have an image of their resurrected body being in the destination. Because most of the thoughts about heaven are kind of, disembodied spirits or spiritual bodies or something along those lines. So the resurrection is a tool to help us understand the reality of where we're going and what it's going to be like when we get there. So anyway, here it is. Let's read this. Revelation 21, one 2, 4 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, <clears throat> as wimpy, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eye and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, everybody includes this in their canon of eschatological last-day scriptures, but nobody talks about it. Honestly, you hardly ever hear it. If this is not the, the one of the focal points that we need to look at when we create eschatological faith and expectation, when we project our faith and our expectation, I mean, towards what's going to be happening in the last days, this is it. Now, this doesn't eliminate all the problems. You go one more paragraph and it's all kinds of judgment and, and angels being in hell and all kinds of weird stuff we've got to sort out. But we're not qualified even to sort it or begin to sort it, begin to interpret it, begin to understand it, if we don't come to grips with the fact that this is what's going on. And look, where did it come from? It came out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, It's relational at the core. It's not a reward. Okay? Look, the tabernacle of God is among men. Now, this can have more meaning to us than it could even a year ago or two years ago for some of us or six months ago or... Eight weeks ago. Because what was the whole point of all the, the stuff there at the base of Mount Sinai? It was so God could come be with the people. It's always been that way. A few months ago, we looked at the idea of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Always. He's always creating. The Spirit of God is always creating a place for God to be with man. Always. What creation was about, that's what tabernacle is about, that's what this is about. And so the tabernacle of God is among man, and he will dwell among them. You see how different that is than us going to heaven? And it's radically different. Radically different. He is going to dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Even an emphasis in this is amazing. God himself will be among him. Himself. You don't need to add himself after that unless you really want to be clear. God himself. Okay. That's cool. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning, or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, I don't have this so I can switch quick enough. I do a little bit later in the thing. But this would definitely, if we take this seriously, put us on the side of cool, you know, not so much the side of panic. Right? So do we have permission to base some of our eschatological last day's expectation on that Scripture? Well, the answer to that is yes, fundamentally. Does it mean that we should exclude the others? No. But can't that have some weight? And I think the answer is, of course it can. The second thing that I think is going to help our eschatology be more of a gift through the Gospel is that we face eternity with a Jesus-focused eschatology. And I will tell you, this is a personal pet peeve of mine. Um, it was about a year and a half ago, maybe, that, uh, that gentleman started having breakfast with us. And he was really intensely into, uh, sort of the traditional futures eschatology. And, and, he, I like people and I like being in a relationship with them. So I like doing what I can. He gave me, uh, 16 hours of video to watch from a guy. And I didn't get through 16 hours. I watched a couple hours of it. And it, I don't know if you guys are like me, but, most traditional eschatological presentations rarely mention Jesus they're talking about other things and it's all okay stuff I mean interpretation prophecies uh, current events all this kind of stuff but but Jesus himself is very rarely mentioned in it and I think that that is a reason why we are so vulnerable to a fear-based um, sort of deception about what's coming. Jesus is in the middle of this stuff. And if he's not, we're not looking at it correctly. All right? So, how about this? Acts three seventeen through 21 And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So once again, what we're looking for as we look to the future is linked to the past. It's confirmed. Even... The exciting thing I, that I shared about the New Covenant, I shared it out of Hebrews 8 in my mind, but it was foretold in Jeremiah 31. All of these things go back, and, and, and God's not been a mystery or hiding any of these sort of things, but there's there's something to do with the appropriate time. There's something to do about the appointed times. I don't understand it all. But all that, that Peter was talking about here that had triggered this need to repent in the people of Israel that he was outside when he was talking to him after that message. All of that God had had in his heart forever. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Now, I hadn't noticed that until I looked at this more closely. That's a weird thing to say. Jesus had become incarnate and had lived for 30 years and he had died recently, and he had ascended very recently. And it says that he may send Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah appointed for you. So once again, did Jesus come? Yes. Does Jesus need to come to an individual? Does he need to come in our lives, in our heart, in our faith, in our belief? Yes. We're not, we're not nullifying anything about evangelism. We're not nullifying anything about the declaration of the gospel, but this is a dynamic interchange. Now, one other thing that this brings to mind is, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And, uh, there's some teaching that's, that's coming out now and it's good stuff, uh, that those two things aren't the dualistically separated realms that we believe, but there's an overlap and, uh, some of you probably heard some of the, the folks teaching about how Eden was an overlap of those things and how uh, Adam and Eve being put in Eden were to, to be the representative of God. They were to represent and pull together these two realms. That's what N.T. Wright talks about when he talks about image-bearing, that you're to take the worship of creation, we are, and offer it to, the, to God and we're to take the love of God and offer it to creation. and then It serves as that tabernacle function, that temple function. But... That he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. I don't exactly know what that means. But what I know is the full force of the Messiah, God is sending, he's, he's available to us. And of course, Jesus said it at the, at the end of all of this stuff, you know, all the stuff, uh, that leads to traditional thinking about what was he saying was coming and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's the thing in Matthew called the Great Commission, right? Uh, go and make disciples of all nations. Peace and observe all that I've commanded you. And I remember uh, several years ago, had a group, and uh, it was here at Joyland. It was the other building. And I said, can anybody here uh, quote the Great Commission? And some people raised their hand, picked a volunteer, and sure enough, uh, very accurate quote, just forgot the last line. Lo, I'll be with you always, even the ends of the earth. We are so quick to pick up duty, And so slow to recognize presence. And that's why I think we've got to, we've got to change some things. So that he may send Jesus Christ appointed whom, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Again, this whole process, not just the cross, but everything beyond it and all that we would envision in our eschatological vision. It has been spoken of. It's been a part of God's heart forever. It transcends his time. Now, this idea of whom heaven must receive is fascinating to me. uh, Because I would rather that Jesus just walked through the door in his glorified body. Although, I don't know that we'd react any better than the disciples did. But it'd still be fun, right? But there's some kind of now exchange. And the reason I brought up this idea of getting away from the Platonic dualism that keeps heaven way up here and earth down here, in Jesus, I mean, no matter what you think about Eden, no matter what you think about the tam- uh, tabernacle or the temple, for sure in Eden, those two realms, I mean, in uh, Jesus, those two realms merged. And then when the very first thing, this was one of the things that, that got us in trouble when we asked the question uh, about the, the uh, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first official thing Jesus did was walk in on the disciples, breathe on them, say, receive the Holy Spirit, and say, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Whosoever sins you forgive or forgiven; whosoever sins you retain or retain. Wow, that's a pretty big commission right off the bat. A merger of this thing. So there's something about us, image-bearers restored, carrying the presence of the Spirit, walking and being Jesus in this world. And uh, anyway, I think it's exciting. And we're going to miss it. We miss it if we keep looking too far up and too far back. Okay. So anyway, uh, the goal is also there that should make you smile. There is a concept of the restoration of all things. Now, I am not prepared to try to identify what that is right now. I have some thoughts, and they've changed my life. But... The goal or the marker for why Jesus is ruling and reigning, and we're going to see it in just a second, is right there in front of us in that first message, first declaration. All right. Another thing that's going to turn eschatology from a terror or a divisive thing into a gift is facing eternity with a victory-focused eschatology. Victory-focused. I'll just read this and you tell me if this doesn't sound like God wins. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. You see how Christ's death is linked all the way back to creation? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Now, if you go back... That he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. I don't know this for sure, but it sure seems to me that there's a relationship between that and where he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And I think we play a role in that. Go and make disciples, teaching them. I think we play a role in exercising image-bearing authority. Filling the void of that Elohimish authority that was broken. We we had. There's something here for us to do. Something here for us to do. He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And in, but when he says all things in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, meaning the Father God. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Now I don't understand what that means or how it's going to happen personally. But I do understand what the last little phrase means. It means that God wins. It means that why that, that, that his reason for creating humanity and in the cosmos is going to be fulfilled. He wins. And so again If we have a victory-focused eschatology, we're not going to panic over the intermediate details or the confusion that those details can can cause. See what I'm saying? Victory-focused. All right. More importantly, and i got to tell you a little story about this one, uh, relative to something I was listening to the other day. Our eschatology can be a gift from the Father if we face eternity with a love-focused eschatology. And quite honestly, you know, I, I, uh, lo- I said Jesus was missing from a lot of eschatological debate and so on. Uh, I think that's the reason love is missing from a lot of it. Because, Richard, same situation. Uh, love transformed your life. And until you believed it, you didn't give it the power and credit to do what it actually did. And I think that's it. I I think we just think love is all well and good as far as it goes, but sometimes you just got to bring the hammer. And I, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not even close to prepared tonight to try to even introduce some kind of discussion about the nature of judgment and justice and all this kind of stuff. But I do understand this, that, that God does justice, but he is love. He does a lot of things. A matter of fact, he does everything that he needs to do to be good. But love is a part of what's coming. Love is the driving factor. Uh, we, we'll see it here a little bit as it applies to us. As it applies to God and the world and motives, just think back to John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The motive is important, especially when you are the the, the foundational source being of all that is. And when you have unlimited power and unlimited time, your motive is really, really important. If you don't have any resources, you don't have any time, and you don't have any reach, it's still good to have good motives, but they're not going to affect that many people. But if you are the God of the universe, your motives are super critical. And they are also super influential. Because God acts according to his own heart. And he loves. So that's why this is important. All right, look at this. By this, the love of God was manifest in us. That, that God, notice that, manifest in us, not to us. It was manifest to us as well. But in us. Manifest in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So, I asked the question on Tuesday when we were talking about this, why isn't this included in every eschatological canon of Scripture? Look what it says. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We have seen and testify that God that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That is an eschatological statement supreme. It defines what this whole hope is about. It defines why He came. It defines why the cross. It defines why the promises. It defines why Israel with Israel. And it defines where we're going. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. Now, I also believe that if you confess Jesus the Son, you experience what we all call salvation. But that's not the big deal about that confession. Again, we think it's the big deal because we believe that we're headed one place to a really bad place, and we want to have some things happen so that we'll go to another place that's better, a lot better. Okay, I'm all for that, if that's how it works out. But why do we so allow ourselves, our hearts, to minimize the relationship with God that comes from acknowledging the love of the Son. I got uh, some pushback one time when I was noting that when Abraham was met by God, the promise, after after going out and, and recovering the folks that had been taken from Sodom and various places, the promise was, I will be your very great reward. best I can understand Hebrew, that's what it says. God said to Abel, I will be your. Would any of us trade that for a better destination? Yes, we would. That's the sad truth of it, but we shouldn't. So, uh, he is in God. God. Uh, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. Again, it's just a reflection of what Jesus taught in John 14.20. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected within us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. This is why I say this should be in the canon of eschatological scripture. How is it that you are going to be confident of being able to stand humbly, but boldly before the throne, the great white throne, the Bema seat, whatever you want to, however we figure that stuff out. Cause I don't really know which is all going to be yet. I'm, I'm kind of holding this stuff loosely now that I'm looking for another base, you know, but how are you expecting and I expecting and our neighbors expecting and the ugly folks that are, that are still in need of reconciliation, recognition. How are we all going to stand? Because love. Because we know we're loved. Let me read it again. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. Now, you might be able to get away reading John 20, saying that when Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you, that was just for the disciples and the apostles because they were called for that. But this isn't in the Gospel. It isn't Jesus speaking just to the 12 or the 11. This is John writing to the church. and it. This is it. Because as He is, so are we. Again, we overlook union. We don't understand what it means. We think it's a nice concept. No, it's our life. And it's our future. It's our future. There is no fear in love. The perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. If if it stopped there, that would be really good. And it would counteract so much of the fear that hovers behind most of our eschatology and most of the stuff you hear preaching. And it's understandable, because there are some ferocious things in the Scripture, and if that's all you talk about and you spend all your time trying to pin that down and pin it on somebody, and who's this and who's that and who's next you're going to get scared. You're going to get scared. And you're going to have fear. So it's good. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. But we have the capacity, unfortunately, because we are so prone to turn everything into a work, to even make being loved and having love work. The next line, though, should deliver us from that big time. (laughs) We love because He first loved us. Do you understand that? We love. There's no qualification there. It doesn't say we love well. It doesn't say we love Him. It doesn't say... It just says we love because He first loved us. Isn't that incredible? So, if I can review these, I think facing eternity with a properly focused... New heaven and new earth. Not some disembodied spiritual thing that's the reward for people who get it right. The second one, what was the second one? I don't remember. we back up. Oh, yeah. Properly focused. Jesus focused. All of us can do that. All of us can do that. Victory focused. God wins. He's not going to, you know... I have a hard time thinking... Eleven and a half percent is a is a win. <laughs> we're just going to have to do better than that. Love focused. All right. So we don't have any time. I thought that would probably be the case. Here are some questions that we can ask as we move forward, because we're going to be honest for another couple of weeks for sure. So I just uh, this morning I reread Matthew twenty four through the end of the scriptures, and it was it was impressive and incredible. What do we think Jesus is revealing in Matthew 24? And when you talk about that so much, you know, and there's a debate between preterism, partial preterism, futurism, and all this kind of stuff. But again, I'm not I'm not asking anybody even what your eschatological beliefs are right now, and I'm certainly not asking you to change them, but I do want you to think about some questions like this. What do we think Jesus is revealing in answer to the questions the disciples ask there in Matthew 24? And I backed up one chapter to 23. And realized that he was being pretty harsh with the Pharisees. He was being pretty harsh with them. And, and of course, you know, it was just a day before he was going to be arrested and be taken. And so he's talking about all this stuff and, uh, facing it. And I'm, I'm not inferring anything from that, but it needs, we need to think of the context of what he was doing and, we need to be careful about assuming that he was laying out a list of future markers beyond the context in Israel where he was with the temple and so on and so forth. Uh, okay, the other question that I, I want to ask is um, whose will do you believe drives the end time calendar? Now, Whatever any of us think about the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, it's safe tonight. <laughs> you could keep thinking it. I don't care. I don't even know what I think about it. I think it, I think there's stuff there to think about. But I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but when I wrestle with eschatology, when I'm confronted with it and when I debate it with people, what God wants, doesn't come into the argument nearly as much as I wish it did. What does God want? What is he doing? Is is the end of things coming from God or is it in spite of God? And I think that we can ask that question and we can maybe come up with some answers. Um, Yeah, come on up. Is it about that particular one? Before I go
2: on? Well, I was thinking about what is the heart of the Father? In all these matters, you've mentioned a couple of times Platonic dualism, and it it caused me to go look up, uh, again, uh, Ephesians 2.14 where Paul says the invisible wall of separation has been eliminated. There was a a wall in the temple to keep those out, Mm -hmm. and then the real Jews in. So I was like, thanks for coming to church, but not so much you. That was kind of the idea. Um, And it seems like Paul especially, but all the disciples... Everybody who God used to write the New Covenant, they were always fighting some form of separation. Mm-hmm. The Greeks had the Platonic, the Jews had the wall of separation, and constantly, it was nonstop. stop Paul's like, no, God mm-hmm. is seeking union with you, regardless yeah, of where you are. we were even fighting. correcting one another in that. And then the, these verses you're going over seem to verify the great battle is father is constantly like Harold Everly said the, the chairs are together they're not, they're not God didn't turn there. away yeah. so yeah. His purpose is not to divide.
0: Not this. All right so then just real quick through these others so you can be thinking about them what role do you think sin or sins plays in Jesus return? There is a scripture that speaks directly to that in Hebrews, but I'm not going to spoil the question <laughs> What is God's purpose for waiting to wrap things up? You ever thought that?
1: Yeah, I
0: thought. Yeah, Lord, why don't you get this program going? Let's because the, you know,
1: like, don't have the. Community. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Here? No. Oh geez. Otherwise, people can't hear you. Oh. Well,
1: well, there you go. Oh, well, I guess I'm just speaking what we're taught that G- Jesus is waiting so that more people will hear about Him and know about what He did for us. So I He can I mean, be. Hey.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's a factor. Because sure. not yeah.
1: everybody knows about Jesus. Yeah,
0: yeah. C.S. Lewis says something interesting. He says everybody wants uh, Jesus to come back, but he says when the author steps out on the stage, the play's over. <laughs> and and so, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. And then lastly, what is the best way to wait, or uh, the best way to long for his appearing? I'm hoping that we can answer these questions, discuss them a little bit in the next couple of weeks as we go on. But the goal for tonight was just to give you permission, to the extent that I have any capability of doing so, that you can choose scriptures like these or others to begin to sit at the base of your eschatology. On Tuesday, I said, what if our our eschatology is really uh, built on the answer to the Lord's Prayer? (laughs) You know, our Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I only got that far through it. But what if all that we expect to happen is just God answering that prayer the millions of times it's been prayed? And it was directly given to us by Jesus. So anyway, that's what I mean. What's the best way? And then, um, <laughs> let's see here. Are we going to be like that? <laughs> or are we going to be like that? Now, to me, this characterizes kind of the us for and no more, except you do get the poor Mr. Potato Head's uh, ear coming in there and everything. But that sense of panic, or if we go back, like I don't even want to speculate who those little alien dudes are, but as the image goes, I think this is what we're called. To. Okay?